you're tuned in to the Neo Academy podcast. My name's Mark, and welcome to another episode of Neo Chats, deep dive conversations into the culture of education. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of uh, Neo Chats, and today we are uh, really privileged to welcome Nanette Ripmeister joining us from from Holland. Nanette, yes, yes, from the yeah. Netherlands, from Rotterdam. From Rotterdam, looking quite uh, unusually sunny for this time of year. Uh, it is, yeah. <laughs> uh, Nanette is the uh, director of expertise in labour and mobility, um, but certainly not. Um, uh, I wouldn't sort of sum everything up like that because you've got a rather interesting, more uh, a sort of mosaic background um, around this area between labour mobility and higher education. So, um, Nanette, I'd really just like, just for our audience who might not know you, I imagine quite a few will in the marketing and recruitment crowd, especially through um, EAIE and other organisations like this. Um, but for those that don't know you, would you be able to summarise just what your what you're currently doing in the field of education, labour mobility, and and what it is that drives you to do it. Okay, well, so we established, I'm Nanette Ripmeister, I uh, work from the Netherlands, Rotterdam, and what I do is, um, I, I do wear a, a variety of hats. I am the director of, for uh, Europe and North America for iGraduate, running the International Student Barometer. I uh, work with expertise in labor mobility, heading a team, and we work with both employers and higher education institutions in the area of careers advice. And in fact, what we did as a next step, and that's probably an answer to your question, is we created the Career Professor app. And with the ISB, the International Student Barometer, we gather data on the satisfaction of international students. And what we noticed there a couple of years ago, um, well, already like eight years ago, I started to notice that one of the key things that is difficult for institutions to address is what happens as a next step after students graduate. And it depends a little bit if you talk to North America, they get that a little bit better than in Europe. But in Europe, they're like, well, they graduate and they're <laughs> out of our hands, none of our worries. But the graduate data was showing year on year an increase. And now it's 96% already for three years in a row. That's the highest reason for students, international students, to choose for a particular university. But the area around the satisfaction with do you feel prepared for your careers, for your next step in the in, in the big scary world outside of higher education, students are saying that they're not very happy. So we introduced a couple of questions into the ISB to get a better understanding of what it is that they're lacking and why they're um, not feeling well prepared. But my work with expertise in labor mobility is always geared towards how can you make sure people and organizations are best prepared for the global world of work? So, well, to me, it was just putting one and the other together and creating an app. So we have career guides uh, focusing on particular countries. We turn those kind, that kind of information into a sort of gamified careers advice because we all know that you know, if you tell people, here's a website or here's a book yeah. and you can look at the book and it tells you a lot, they go like, 
Yeah. Um, so we thought we have to do it in a different format and we turned it into gamified careers advice so you can progress levels, move on. And that's what career professor does. And yeah, what drives me, um, I studied European studies at the University of Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. And yeah, well, I was one of the first years to graduate European studies. It already says it. So I was thinking, oh, I have to do some research and well, I just add the word EC perspective to it because, um, and I was really keen on finding out what is it that the, the labor market needs and what is it that universities prepare, do with their students. And I simply added the word European perspective to it, thinking then I'd be done. And that was the start, in fact, of, well, my entire career almost because, right. um, well, here we are talking um well, almost 30 years later, about what drives me. And that's what drives me, making the connection between higher education and the world of work. So are you, then, if I, if I understand, are you sort of focused on, um, you're, you, you span both parts of that. So you're looking at the the education experience in terms of the way in which, or the extent to which the institution prepares these learners for the world of uh, for the labor market for the world of work to achieve their career goals etc um but what i didn't quite catch was on the other side i mean are you working with universities as well to help to extend their their interaction a little bit um, yeah post-graduation yeah, yeah sorry I'm, i was maybe not very clear on that so what we're trying to do is help universities understand that um in fact, what they teach their students, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think what they should be doing is have in their curricula more attention for the job market and for the step after graduation. Because I think if you want to be successful as a higher education institution in the future, you need to attract the right type of students and you need to give them the right kind of education, what your type of students are looking for and what sets them up for success. So that's slightly different for from everybody involved. And I'm not saying that you have to personalize every study for every student because hmm. that's gonna be difficult, but I think you can do more in gearing it more towards people's talents and the needs right. of the job market. So in more detail then, because if I think I, in my my time in higher education, I think I agree that it's fragmented. It's like the, so you've got the academic side, which is this bubble. And they talk about, they relate it to, um, you know, perhaps the world of work in terms of how this learning um, looks in the real world based on the professor's personal experience, usually, um, and case studies and things like that but it's not really about the individual in front of you. And then you've got this disjointed part, which is the careers advice service, you know, offering workshops on writing your CV, applying for jobs, job interview techniques. Yeah. But but in the middle, there's there's not that kind of um, cohesive follow through, as you say about the, the sort of, uh, you know, understanding what my talent and skills are. What what skills have I actually developed without perhaps it being highlighted um, to me? And and what does the labor market need? I mean, if if we think about, You've been in this for a long time, but right now, I mean, what gaps can you still see between the way that higher education prepares its learners for the labor market and what the labor market actually needs? I mean, what are these gaps and why do you think they still exist? Oh, I, I, the, the gaps move. And I think it's also interesting right. to notice that 
Um, when we talk about employability skills, we very often think that we talk about one group of uh, a set skill set that will get you a job everywhere in the world. Well, yeah. that's not true because first of all, there's there's differences between countries. Some countries, they really appreciate other types of skills than in other uh, countries. So there's a, there's a difference country-wise, culture-wise there. Of course, there's a difference also between certain uh, types of sectors. So there's sectoral differences, but there is something that is, um, that is constantly there, but it's moving. It's not a set skill uh, set. So that makes it also a bit difficult. But what we, for instance, saw about the pandemic, and I thought that was really, really interesting, um, things have been changing. And uh, intercultural communication has been mm -hmm. on the rise for a while already. Uh, when I, I always interview our um, uh, company contacts that we deal with, we have a little ongoing survey and intercultural communication was yeah on the back burner. But we right. saw it increase for a while and then the pandemic hit and it became really important because companies were saying, well, the, the top probably gets it. The senior management has that experience and can shift. So if they have to talk in the morning to Australia and sort of go in their no worries mode, and then uh, um, when they talk to a German a contact uh, in uh, in the middle of the day, they know that no worries mode is probably not the right mode <laughs> to be in, and they know they need to be really exact and precise, gründlich, pünktlich, accurate and precise. And then towards the end of the day, you might be talking to somebody in, say, Canada, and you need another kind of mindset. So the, mm -hmm. the companies were saying our senior management has that experience and knows, well, they hope, they know that they know how to shift gear there. But now with the pandemic, suddenly very young people were from their homes connecting with people all over the place and had to fine tune that um depending on who they were talking to so suddenly intercultural communication became a very different value uh, for a lot of of sectors and they were paying a lot more attention to it um what well, adaptability obviously was one that was highlighted the ability to deal with insecurity was one that was very mm -hmm. very prominent mm -hmm. technical skills i think the young people were capable of showing us like well how do you uh, how do you do Teams and Zoom and all these things where, where well, our generations were a bit more like, what button do I need to press now? So the technical skills were very obvious. And one thing that I liked a lot was that um, empathy suddenly became something that people said, the ability to think of other people, deal with other people, reckon with other people, that is an important one. So I think that was was something that was um, a positive outcome, at least for me, from the pandemic. It, it it chimes with what I've been hearing as well. I mean, that's really interesting because it, what what if, if I understand what you're saying here, it, it's there's a, a broadening of perspective and what employability skills are. And you've got people like the OECD who have been going on for a while about, like, for example, they've got, you know, the, the, the global skills. It's a big umbrella group. Uh, and they, it's a little strange because they've packaged in things like information literacy there and the ability to kind of critically filter information and things. But in there is also the intercultural competence and understanding. And 
I've seen an increase in universities in particular starting to actually do this more seriously, where there's almost a sometimes mandatory inclusion of uh, intercultural understanding courses. It's not that common, I don't think. But no, it's, it's not. There. It's not as common yet as I would like it to see because. But that's also because it's my personal hobby horse. But I really think <laughs> if you understand other people's cultures, and I'm not saying that I'm the perfect person in that sense. I make silly mistakes, rookie mistakes also sometimes. Right. But I think if you have this basic understanding that people from another culture might do something different um, uh, because they're thinking around how do you get to a certain conclusion uh, what drives people may be very very different and only if you i think if you already have that sort of knowledge that common feeling that people mm -hmm. do things differently i think that's already enough to be be more successful in it so you don't have to be you don't have to know uh oh the Finns they might be very quiet people because you might meet that one very talkative uh, uh Finn. Yeah. there might yeah. be some people in the aia crowd that are thinking of some of the things they might know and think like, oh, they're not that quiet at all. Yeah. So you stereotypes can also fool you. But I think if you have the, the basic understanding that what drives somebody might be very different from what drives you, I think that's, that's where it all starts. Absolutely. And I think that's the beauty about intercultural understanding or intercultural competence, whatever you want to, want to call it, is that a lot of these other kind of target skills, cognitive, effective skills that that people like the OECD are, and UNESCO are saying, oh, we need, this is what the labor market needs. They're actually part of intercultural competence. I mean, empathy is part of it. Self-reflection, yeah. critical reflection on yourself. You know, yeah. exactly the, the, the example you gave. Maybe maybe I need to think differently. It, yeah. It's all in there. So it's it's not just this kind of um, thing that's just a part and, oh, we, we got to put this in as an extra thing. It's actually ticking well, a lot you, of boxes yeah i think if you if you integrate it into your curricula yeah. if you um think about in advance how can we make it explicit for our students because i think our students learn a lot uh in all the things that we make them do but sometimes we forget to make it explicit for them what always strikes me if we talk about internationalization of higher education and i think everybody that's listening to this podcast has an experience there where you, when you ask your the student that's been abroad so what did you learn from it the chances that somebody says oh it was nice and if you push they say well it was fun no it was it, no. and if you really really push to say oh i learned another language but if you make it more explicit from for them up front mm -hmm. and when they come back to yes. help them sort of unpack their skills and unpack their learning and help them understand what it did for them. And it needs very, very little. And uh, some people need a little bit more than others. But I think the, the need for translation of skills is a key one. Um, I do a lot of work also with groups of students uh, from, from, from bachelor to PhD level. And what always strikes me, the translation of those skills is really um, where it all boils, boils down to. Mm -hmm. Also, PhD students, you know, they're, they're super clever people and they have no idea that if you talk to an employer, you have to start using, if that employer is in the profit sector, 
or the non-profit, but outside of academia, you have to start using other words to yes. describe what you've been doing, because otherwise they're simply not getting yeah. what you have been doing. And they think, ah, mm -hmm. oh, there's again one of those people in an ivory tower, no mm -hmm. clue whatsoever. Whereas if you say, yeah, I have got management experience because I've been working with a group of master students and they had to work on this project, then it's the translation of the skills that makes you more employable. So we're not only talking about um, supporting learners um, to develop the skills, but also supporting them to internalize that they have developed and to be able to communicate that to others, which is actually, it's funny when people say experience is the best teacher, I always have a bit of a trouble with that because if that's the case, then why are we not all perfect at life? You know, but it's structured, supported experiences that that really help us, don't they? I mean, they help us get the best out of ourselves. The example you gave about the exchanges a little some things to think about in advance so that you're primed and ready to to notice things that you might otherwise um notice on a more subconscious level it, it's it takes very little work to do so yeah it, it's just just helping people to to make those connections it, it's i think most of it it's all there it's making it more explicit and um and i think that's also why why it almost surprises me how little there's being done still at universities and, and colleges, more so at colleges though, but how little there's still being done in the higher education sector to help people make that translation and make that transition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, I couldn't agree more actually, unfortunately, but uh, you know, um, to, to jump over the other side of the, the chasm, which shouldn't be a chasm, um, in the labor market itself, because that's the other thing is, um, I mean, obviously you mentioned companies uh, accelerated by the pandemic have suddenly, you know, it's bumped things like intercultural understanding way up the up the flagpole. But um, in terms of the wider labor market itself, which is changing massively, are there other um, shifts, trends, developments that you're seeing out there that are actually going to really challenge education institutions? And if so, you know, what are they and what do you think education institutions need to do to keep pace? Can they? Can they keep pace in their current form? Um, it's interesting because you add in their current form. And that's, this is a discussion that I see coming back a lot of times where people say in their current form. I think, yes, they can and they can in their current form, provided that they're willing to listen and acknowledge that maybe they cannot do everything themselves and they sometimes need to bring experts in a particular field in so i'm i'm not pessimistic i'm um, mm -hmm. i'm an optimistic person and also in this case i'm optimistic but i do see a lot of things um people say that globalization is less of an issue i think well the pandemic proved it's a big big issue yeah uh, we're very very globally connected whether that's good or bad is um is a is an interesting podcast because there's a lot to to debate about uh, uh, about that. But okay, globalization is there as some a force that we have to reckon with and deal with. Technological change, I think that uh, the technological change is a is a good one. I recently read something on Twitter uh, where it was said uh, like edtech companies are are sort of willing to disrupt higher education. I would I would find that very disturbing idea that that would happen because if we look at other sectors, I don't think booking.com did something extremely good 
for uh, right. uh, maybe yeah. for for a few players in the field, but I think for a very limited group, in fact, they did something good. So those kind of disruptions, I'm not sure if that's a good one. But I do think higher education needs to pay attention to it and understand that if they don't make the changes, yes. outside forces will start making changes for them. And I don't think that's for the, the, the better, but I think it, it will, in the end, be very destructive. Uh, maybe not in the beginning, but in the end, it will be. Um, so I think they should use technology in, in as their advantage. I also think that there's an interesting shift if we look at the younger generations. Um, the people that are currently in universities are way more focal than, than I was when I was at university. And I think the group mm -hmm. that's coming up is even more focal. I think we also sometimes need to, to tell them, hey, there's also some responsibility with you. You can't just be focal and look to the others to solve your problem. But so I think there's a lot of, of, of things changing. We have a lot of political instability, more so than we we all, well, hoped for. Um, and I think that's all going to have an impact on our society and on our higher education institutions. But to answer your question, do I think that higher education can solve everything? Not Well, not everything, but they can solve quite a lot. They can keep up with the pace, provided they're willing to acknowledge that they might not be good at everything, that they occasionally mm -hmm. need to <laughs> listen to voices around them, voices who are usually positive, but who are getting louder and louder. Yeah. And it's taking care of our environment, thinking about sustainability, thinking about employability, that your students are not just somebody that pays, comes in, pays a fee, leaves, and it's none of your responsibility. Mm -hmm. I think that entire thinking has to change and we need to think in a more circular way because those students come in, they stay with you and they leave as alumni. And if they leave as your brand ambassador alumni, I think you have done a great job. Also for bringing in new students um, as a next step. So that whole circular thinking, uh, we talked a bit before about sustainability, but I think circular thinking with everything is an important one, also with employability. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think, you know, the, the idea of the institution the processing through it is is it, as a funnel seems like a very old fashioned idea, you know. Yeah. Um, and and you just exit out the other side and and hopefully you speak well of the institution and hopefully you do well and let's measure graduate success and put it into statistics to attract new people, but it's not joined up. And it's interesting because, you know, if you look at primary um and secondary education, they very much more certainly in the north of Europe at least are it's a holistic um sense of education you know we're, we're responsible for the whole person and you know there's a focus on well-being there's a focus on um developing skills and things not not always I'm certainly generalizing but it's more the discussions I hear around me whereas in in university it's more it's academia um it's yeah. you know it's it and and really people don't stop being people when they get to university they have you know, we still have a responsibility in education. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I find it very interesting, you know, that you're, when you're looking at that whole part of the process that you're talking about the responsibility and you're already seeing institutions like say Google who are saying, well, 
if you can't change your your curricula um, more than every three or four years when technology is changing every month, then we're going to offer our own certifications. And in case you worry about validity of these certifications, here's a list of companies that are already willing to accept these um, and different yeah, ways to so evidence that... your learning, micro credentials, learning portfolios. It's already yeah, there's, there's happening. A, there's a lot happening out there. And I think, and um the 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 speediness by what things happen you yeah. mentioned you can't you can't change curricula you, you just can't change your curricula every month even no. every three to four years is a lot of work yeah so i don't think you need to change your entire curricula because but you need to build in parts of your program where you build in certain ways of thinking and that that can be um, it's just if um, we've been working with a Canadian community college, uh, NCSS, uh, so Nova Scotia Community College, and what they said was, okay, we have these students that come with us and go out after they've uh, been abroad for a while, and then we sort of have no idea, in fact, what they're going <laughs> to be doing because they're, they're, they're gone. Uh, um, but what if we try and give them a little bit more and help them understand what they're doing when they go abroad? Uh, so I worked with the international office um, at that uh, community college. And what we really tried was to build in blocks of employability skills that were taught by the the teachers that would normally, so the professors that would normally be teaching those kind of classes. And it was various classes from um, <laughs> cooking uh, and, and, and um, it's a community college, so you learn people yeah. uh, certain skills. But you can uh, also uh, build that into um, uh, business courses. So they had really very two very distinct courses one more way hands-on and one more way academic. And they made sure that their, their professors were bringing in employability thinking. So they didn't redesign their entire curricula. They just added a few modules where they shifted gear a little bit. Yes. Yeah, they brought me in and I did do uh, a webinar. But, you know, two webinars of an hour can already help the people attending to start thinking differently. And yeah. I, I really think that sometimes you need very little. I started off by saying that you can't do it personalized for every person, but you can do it personalized for every course that you teach. If you would simply bring in an alumnus of that particular course, uh, and then maybe not always the straightforward alumnus, but maybe somebody that has a very different um, route into the field and to open people's eyes and to tell them, uh, I did European studies. I, for a couple of years, I went back to my university, my alma mater, and talked to European students, European study students, and talked about how I came to work for the European Commission and what my route in there was, because it wasn't the straightforward concourse type route into uh, the commission, but I worked there for six or seven years with great fun. And I also told them why I left. So if you just help them understand what it is they can do with the acquired learning, I think you're you're there. To come back to your point, just to, before I ask a, a final question, it's just to reinforce this idea of, um, you know, a brand ambassador as well. It seems like it's 
it's a no-brainer for for institutions on so many levels because not only are you um taking that that broader responsibility for um the what happens after the learning journey and your part in that and your integral part in their future success um but you're also by helping people at every stage give them opportunities to reflect focus prepare um set personal goals personalize their experience internalize what they've learned connected to skills that are in demand and 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 give them the um, support to communicate that to others, you're really setting them up for, for success. And I think that students will not forget that. So instead of the, the small percentage of those who had a universally favorable experience and are more than willing to get on a platform and talk about it, you're going to have a much broader, more mainstream body of students coming out thinking that institution really set me up for success. And telling people about it and, and it's just it, it works on every level and as you say with probably less um less investment less disruption than people think yeah i i think people sometimes think too complicated about these these kind of things uh, and it's making a shift in thinking instead of spending most of your budget or maybe even your marketing budget on getting well if you would say it's in a very flat form, bumps on seats, just getting yeah. students in. If you would spend a little bit more of that marketing budget on thinking about career, thinking about employability, setting people up for success, um, that would be marketing budget very well spent because yes. you get a way broader group of people willing to vouch for your institution. And I think it starts by being truly honest what it is that you provide your students with. Because sometimes I see universities of applied science, for instance, not wanting to say they're a university of applied science, whereas I think their strengths is being a university of applied science. Underline, not the word university, underline of applied sciences. Because if you tell that to your students, you attract the right type of students. Yeah. And I think, you set up right people for success, probably also in what we need as a society. So, yeah, I think it starts really at the beginning. Well, so that leads me to my final question very neatly, actually. Thank you, Lynette. Um <laughs> About at the beginning, because this is the, the issue as well. I, I think back to, you know, you and I have been through the experience. We've got a, a, a bit more of a bird's eye view on, on our respective areas that we work in. And, but going back to sort of generation alpha coming up now who i agree are certainly more vocal are more willing to trust their peers than what they see presented to them online uh they're certainly more willing to to self-research their you know and make up their own minds a bit more but still it's difficult through the clamor um to really understand um to what extent that institution is going to support you in your personal goals you know, beyond the statistics and the things, the the glossy brochures and, and whatever. So as a learner coming up now to, to an undergraduate program, for example, and thinking, okay, this is a big decision. Um, how do I choose a, a university that's going to support me in, in really uh, getting into this current labor market or the labor market that is going to exist when I get to the end of it, which could be, you know, it's a volatile situation. What advice would you give them? I mean, how can... I, how can they make that choice? What kind of things are they really looking for? Is there any way they can drill down to, to make the best decision? Um, 
that's that's a big big question um and you said something very important also it's a volatile situation and um we might be preparing people now for a labor market that has jobs that we don't even know the title the job titles of right now because i think that's what we're facing in fact the, the job market is really really changing very rapidly and so that skill set is way more important than it right. was before because of those changes. Yeah. What what advice do you need to give somebody right now? I think it's the most boring advice that, and well, misused advice probably also, but find something that you as a person really, really like. Don't listen to your parents. Don't listen to careers advisors. Listen to your inner voice and find something that you really like doing. Now, this is quite difficult because if you're a young person, you don't know what you really like doing and you don't know how to do that in a particular job if we already can't tell you what that job looks like. But yeah. I think if... If there would be parties out there that would pay more attention for what type of jobs can you do, what type of skill sets, what type of human beings are working in, because um, it depends so much from who you are as a person, uh, where do you feel at home, what do you like in your colleagues. Um, so, so we need to paint a picture of what that sector will be like, what kind of people are in that sector, what kind of skills do they value. And this is a, it's a tricky one, but I think we can, we can do it. We're not there yet, but I think we can. And I think it needs employers, it needs higher education institutions, and it probably also needs at some point the government, maybe not from the beginning, but at some point it also needs the government to really together come up with something that we help young people in making good choices. Yeah. Um, and I would always advise follow your own, well, maybe not follow your heart, but follow your inner voice because your heart might sometimes jump up and down a little bit too much. Whereas you, if you and here again we can help people to it's like if you send people abroad and you help them to understand what they've been learning we can also ask questions to people when they're way younger to make them understand what are the things they like and right yeah. now we very often talk about what is having prestige so what do your parents like what is making lots of money well maybe in the end you want to go for making money that's fine, but maybe that's not your main driver. What are questions that we can help people to understand what are their inner drivers? And I think that's possible and that is not that complicated. So we're, we're almost, um, because earlier on we were talking about the discussions spanning between, um, you know, the, the, the sort of pre-graduation and post-graduation support and tying those up and making it more seamless. And here it seems like we're almost talking about pre-application yeah. Um, tying that up as well. Maybe, maybe universities again extending their their influence anaphorically uh, into um, high schools, for example, and saying, let's, you know, we can come in and talk about how to make this transition and to help you 
make the right choices. Yeah. Maybe not universities who have a no, vested maybe, interest. Maybe it's in not it. universities yeah. that should be yeah. doing it. But um, um, I remember when um, when my daughter, who's who's an adult now, but when she had to decide what to study, um, there was this this sort of evening parent evening and the, the way the person was talking about it it was so limited so yeah. so limited my husband's a medical doctor so i'm in higher education and careers advice my husband is doing one of those professions where people say oh yeah it's a great profession you'll be making lots of money which is in fact not true because mm. things are shifting in that area too yeah. um but the the person talking about was saying, yeah, you should, uh, medicine is a great career, technical is a great career. And I said, why is medical a great career? And she was like, um, well, because people got always ill. And my husband, who's doing um, a lot of technical developments said, yeah, and we can use computers to do a lot of care. Uh, uh, can we talk about something else? And it was so yeah. limited because that is not how you help people make a career decision it is not just about making money and prestige it's about yes. an an awful lot of other things and um why do you even want to talk to parents about what kids are going to be doing i think it's talking to the kids what they should be doing but that's a scary thing to let go particularly yes. for helping parents <laughs> but i think that is something they should be doing it's up to the kids yeah so we're really talking about tying up the whole process, aren't we? Looking, yeah. looking at the whole thing. Um, but again, you know, not to not to overplay it in terms of how technical this is. I mean, really, it's it's targeted um, support areas. It's it's tweaks here. It's support supported reflection here and there. It's the right conversations at the right time, the right access to opportunities at the right time. Um, and there, tech can be a great help. Eh? Uh, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm not at all against tech. Um, we created an app, so we're we're pro uh, tech. But I think tech is helping. Tech is not leading, and I think that should be an important thing to realize. Well, you're doing extremely important work, and I hope more people listen to you, Nanette, because um, that's I hope so too. <laughs> it couldn't be more important. So, I mean, just to summarize, we're we're talking about a broadening of the concept of what employability is. We're talking about uh, a focus on skills development because skills are in the end going to provide the adaptability to a fluid, volatile labor market that a focus on yeah. pure knowledge domains cannot. We're talking about tying up the process. So um, help supporting young people to, to make the decisions in a more person-centered way. Um, we're talking about... Um, focusing on beyond graduation as well and looking at you know how we support you into the labor market um and and making sure that reflection is is punctuating the the learning journey and the rest the kind of the student ambassadors the retention the um the circular movement of graduates with recommendation to new admissions will be a natural byproduct of happy fulfilled students yeah yeah. yeah, absolutely. Great summary, Mark. <laughs> You've been doing this before. <laughs> no, I'm very interested in this and I'm I'm really I'd love to to talk to you more another time about just to dig into some of your, you know, um specific solutions in in some of these areas as well. And if if um universities, I guess in particular, um would like to contact you, what's the best way for them to to do that to talk more about this stuff? 
Oh, they can reach me via uh, labormobility.com. So they can reach me via email n.ripmaster at labormobility.com, LinkedIn. Um, so yeah, there's numerous ways they can reach out and connect with me. I think LinkedIn would probably be the easiest. Okay, we'll make sure that we post that in there as well because it'd be great if more more institutions were were able to speak to you and avail of your 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 expertise in this. You're absolutely right. Can't do everything ourselves. You're out there. You know oh. the situation. Ask for help. It's a strength. Ask for help. A, uh, yeah. Get expertise in. Don't yeah. think you can do everything yourself. Um, I'm an expert in something. You're an expert in something. Bring those people in that can help you out and do things for you and, and work with them. Help help them to make you become better. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Nanette. Okay. Thank I've you for talking to you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Bye.